Catholic Doctrine Bible Study. This is session 174. I'm your host, Jim Hawk. And in this session, we're going to begin a brief study on the book of Leviticus. So I was listening to EWTN radio the other day, and I heard a plug for a new Bible study that they're offering. And the announcer said, did you start the new year with a resolution to read through the entire Bible, and you were doing great until you hit the book of Leviticus, and then the music kind of went, da, na, na, na. Uh, The notes in the NAB's study Bible say, if you are reading your way through the book Bible one book at a time, your reading might come to a grinding halt at Leviticus. There are no good stories and hardly any characters. It's basically all laws. In fact, of the 613 binding laws binding on the people of Is uh, the Israelites mentioned in the first five books of the Bible, 247 of these laws are in Leviticus. So, who wrote it and when? Um, as with the rest of the Pentateuch, uh, almost everyone agreed until the mid-19th century that it was written by Moses, who lived around, let's say, 1400, 1450 BC, in, in that area would have been about the time. But about 150 years ago, as we've discussed before, some scholars noted that there appears to be as many as four different styles of writing. And they concluded, for themselves at least, that these four sources, known as the Yahwist, Y-A-H-W-I-S-T, the Elohist, E-L-O-H-I-S-T, by the way, both of those are different names for God, so they figure if somebody calls God by different names, perhaps it was a different author, author for each, each approach. Then there's the priestly source and the Deuteronomist source. And they figured that all of those were all edited together or redacted from oral traditions during the Babylonian exile of, of the uh, Israelites sometime between 520 and 586 BC. Okay. Now, uh, and by the way, this, the book of Leviticus is attributed to the priestly source. And you'll see why, because there's lots of laws and lots of things that involve the order of worship, etc. So as a Catholic, you can believe either theory, uh, but there's no doubt that Moses was the central character and the greatest influence on the last four books of the, the Pentateuch. Okay. Um, so either way, Leviticus is the inspired word of God. How do we know this? Because the church says it is, along with all the other books of scripture, at several church councils in, in the late 300s AD. Uh, the church has that authority, once again, because Jesus gave the church the power to bind and loose. We've talked about this many times. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 20 of the New Testament. Okay. So again, priestly source, lots of laws, okay, regarding worship. Leviticus is a Greek word meaning relating to the Levites. The Levites, as we've already seen, from the are from the tribe of Levi, one of those 12 tribes that originally came 
from the 12 sons of Jacob, which we studied back in Genesis, right? We saw that the Levites were called to be priests after the golden calf incident, uh, when in Exodus chapter 32, specifically verse 26, the Levites volunteered to kill the 3,000 party animals that were involved in that orgy related to the worship of the golden calf. So Leviticus picks up right where Exodus left off. The people are still at the base of Mount Sinai. So let's do a little timeline here. Where they've been for about six months. It's been about nine months, give or take, since they left Egypt after the Passover event that we saw in, in, uh, in the book of Exodus. Now, the central theme of Exodus is holiness, both internal and external. So I would say that should be a theme for us as well. It could be summed up in God's statement, be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. And that is in Leviticus chapter 19 and uh, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, and other places as well. Okay. It's about law, religious ritual, and how to worship. Now, you're going to get a sense going through Leviticus that worship and daily life are interconnected. Uh, and so it should be in our own lives, right? The, the things that we do should all bring us closer to God. Our work, our play, uh, how we spend our leisure time, etc. So it was essential for the people to be ritually clean before God. The Israelites needed to keep themselves in a state of legal purity or external sanct sanctification as a sign of their intimate union with the Lord. So these laws, all, all of them, were intended to keep the people's minds focused on God. So this, Levit this book of Leviticus prefigures New Testament worship in that both Leviticus and New Testament worship both emphasize the importance of sacrifice. Here in Leviticus, it's animals that get sacrificed. And of course, in the New Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's Christ that gets sacrificed on the cross. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is an excellent companion to Leviticus in that it relates the laws of Leviticus and the high priest position in Leviticus uh, has, their, their, has their fulfillment in Christ. So the high priest of Leviticus and the Old Testament has his full, ultimate fulfillment in Christ in the New Testament. In fact, it would be hard to understand a large section of Hebrews without a background in Leviticus. So we'll be hopefully referring back and forth between the two books. Okay, let's dive into the text. So unless you are um, driving, please turn to chapter 1. But we're not, I'm not going to read this to you because a lot of these laws are not going to be, they're going to be nonsensical to us in today's world. 
So I'm going to more or less give you an outline to follow and let you read this, this book on, on your own. There's going to be some weird stuff in here, believe me. So I'm not going to read it to you, but I'll just kind of outline it for you. Chapters 1 through 7 tell us about the five types of offerings made in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to bore you with them. I will include this in a handout. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just summarize them. Chapter 1 deals with a burnt offering that the people are supposed to submit to the Lord. What was it for? It was to offer praise, thanks, and total sovereign to acknowledge the total sovereignty of God. Uh, the flesh of the animal in this burnt offering was totally burned up. There was no meat left to share. So total sovereignty, total devotion means a total sacrifice of the total animal. And um, it's like saying, um, well, it, it, the, the burnt offering atones for sin in general. It's like saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10 says the burnt offering that we're talking about must be a male animal without blemish. So who does that remind you of in the New Testament? Well, it's not an animal in that sense, but Christ was without blemish, right? Okay, so what what do we take away from this chapter, uh, chapter one? Uh, you're supposed to give your best, okay? Animals were your source of, of income, right? You're supposed to give your best. In the New Testament, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse one, give your bodies to God. Let them be a living, holy sacrifice. So that's one step up, if you will, from the dead sacrifice like we're seeing here in, uh, in uh, Leviticus chapter 1. Backing up, verse 5 of chapter 1 says the priests offer up the sacrifice's blood just as the priest uh, at our mass offers up the what? The blood of Christ. Okay, so you see this connection between Judaism and Catholicism. Okay, the next offering listed, not performed in this order, is in chapter two, the cereal offering, C-E-R-E-A-L offering. No, it wasn't, you know, Captain Crunch or Bran Flakes or something. Um, it was for the cereal uh, offering was for to show devotion to God and gratefulness for the harvest, but it didn't atone for sin. Okay, but verse two says you must use fine flour again. Give your best to God. So there's another takeaway or the same takeaway. Give your best to God. Okay, and offer up a sacrifice. And as Paul said. Give yourself as a living sacrifice in the New Testament. Okay. Uh, notice in verse 4 of chapter 2 that this, uh, this uh, cereal offering, it's to be unleavened. Why? Well, number one, remember the Passover, right? The people are supposed to eat unleavened bread to remind them, hey, we got to leave quickly. We don't even have time to let, uh, to let the, uh, the dough rise. And also remember that leaven represents sin. 
Leaven is bacteria. It represents sin. You know, it, you let it hang around and it'll grow like bacteria. Um, by the way, our Catholic host is confected with, you guessed it, unleavened bread. So there's another connection. Uh, verse 13 of that same chapter 2 says the cereal offering must be seasoned with salt. What does salt do? It's a preservative. It makes things last longer. It gives flavor. Uh, New, New Testament connection to that, if you want to write in your margins next to uh, chapter 2, verse 13, how about the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told the apostles what? You are the what? Salt of the earth. He's saying, preserve my church, because that's what salt is. It's a preservative. Give it flavor. There's a pinch of salt in our holy water, for example. Okay, the third offering listed is in chapter 3. It's the peace offering. It's an animal sacrifice, but its purpose is for thanksgiving and fellowship with God and with each other. So it's not a sin offering, it's a thanksgiving offering. Um, In the Catholic world, what does the blood sacrifice resemble? The Eucharist. Eucharist actually means what? Thanksgiving. And it's for fellowship. It's for community or communion. We receive Eucharistic communion, okay? And that's what this uh, this third offering is uh, type, the, the peace offering, okay? Now, in the peace offering described in chapter 3 here, the best parts of the animal are given to God, but the rest was shared between the priest and the people. So you, but you couldn't just go and have a peace offering. You couldn't just have that intimate fellowship with God without taking care of a couple of other things first. Okay, but we'll get to that in a minute. The next offering listed, which is in chapter four, is the sin offering. It is to atone for specific sin specific sin. You do a specific thing wrong, as opposed to the one that we read about in uh, chapter one, which is like for sin in general. Okay. Uh, We see in verse three of chapter four, what does it say? Verse three, chapter four. Let's look at it together. It says, um, if it is the anointed priest who thus sins and thereby makes the people also become guilty, he shall present to the Lord a young unblemished bull. Okay, maybe underline that. Why do you suppose a bull? Do you remember last week why the high priest had to offer up a young bull to atone for his sin? To remind him and the people of the idol worship of, you guessed it, the golden calf. Remember, Aaron was the first high priest. We have the same requirement um, in verse 14 of this chapter 4, if the whole community sins. But there's a less valuable animal, a she-goat, that's used for individuals who sin, and that's described in, in verse 28. So in verse 12 of chapter 4, it says that for the sin offering, 
the whole bull is to be burned outside the camp. Okay. For the offerings other than the sin offering, the flesh is to be sacrificed on the altar inside the camp. So here's a New Testament parallel for you. Was Jesus, who died for our sins, crucified inside the gates or outside the gates? Well, outside the gates. Okay. So we're seeing some parallels here uh, between uh, what the Levites are, are practicing and the idea of our, you know, some of our procedures at Mass. And make no mistake, our Mass is a sacrifice. More on that later. But sadly, we are just about out of time. Maybe I've got time to mention one other uh, of the last of these offerings. And by the way, I'm including this in a handout. So look for the, look for the handout. In chapter 5, the last type of sacrifice listed is the guilt offering, which oh, we Catholics should love this one, right? Um, which is a blood sacrifice that involves restitution or reparation. If you sin, you not only have to acknowledge the sin to the priest, you have to pay to fix what you did and then add 20% to it as a form of penance. So, what sacrament does this sound like to you? Well, confession to a priest followed by penance. So that's the sacrament of reconciliation. Okay, so I think we're at a stopping point now. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I confess for myself that this isn't the most interesting of readings but we can see, even in what we've looked at so far in the first five chapters, a distinct connection between the sacrifices of, of the Israelites and the sacrifice that Christ makes on uh, the cross in, in the New Testament. So help us be ever mindful of that sacrifice as, as we sacrifice ourselves, as Paul tells us, to make our, offer us ourselves up as living sacrifices. These people were sacrificing dead animals. We want to sacrifice our live life, our lives, live lives to you. Um, we ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.